Hello, everybody, and welcome to the fifth annual Convex2 Symposium. I'm delighted today to be with three uh, distinguished leaders from around the world, uh, friends for, for many, many years, uh, and colleagues that will talk with us today about how they see the role of science um, in the world today, two years into the COVID pandemic, with a particular focus on innovation, truthfulness, and the quality of communications um, again, thinking more carefully about the lens of telehealth, telemedicine, digital health, but particularly what are the key lessons that we've learned? What are some of the great ideas that they've been working on? Where's the cutting edge, leading edge of science? Um, and what are some key lessons that we've learned about where best to go forward? I'm going to start by uh, inviting each of the speakers to briefly introduce themselves, and then we'll start with the questions. So starting with uh, Walter, Professor Ricciardi from Italy. My name is Walter Ricciardi. I'm professor of public health at the Catholic University of the Sacred Heart in Rome. I'm president of the World Federation of Public Health Association, the umbrella organization for all the national public health association in the world. And I'm scientific advisor to the Italian Minister of Health. Thank you, Walter. Eyal? I am Professor Eyal Zimlikman from Shiba Medical Center. I have two hats at Shiba here in Israel. One is the chief medical officer, and the other is the chief innovation officer. Um, Shiba Medical Center is the largest hospital in Israel. And uh, under that, under the role of chief innovation officer, we've started our ARC Innovation Program, which is a global ecosystem of innovation. I'll be happy to uh, tell more about the involvement of ARC with COVID, of course, later on. Thanks, yeah. Rami? Uh, yeah, hi, I'm an internist. Uh, I work at the King Hussein Medical Center, which is a tertiary care hospital, uh, but I'm also uh, heading the um, e-health solution uh, company that uh, runs the Hakim program for electronic health records uh, for all of Jordan, uh, as well as the uh, Royal Health Awareness Society, where we spread the information uh, regarding COVID and other issues. Super. Um, so, you know, obviously the pandemic has upended my life, your lives. We've talked about this individually and together. So I'm curious as a start, one thing, Walter, what's one thing that you've learned from your experience with the pandemic that you're going to take forward? You know, Italy was the first country struck outside China. So we had to experience the first front line. And I cannot forget when we told the other ministers of health, all around the world that we were going to lock down the country. They couldn't believe it. I mean, at that time, uh, they believed that was just a problem of Italy, you know, that, uh, and I say, you know, sooner or later, it's not going only in Italy, it's going to come to your country. So you, it's better you start to think in a different way. So my lesson is that politicians tend to ignore science as soon as they can, and they do that, and uh, they take tough decisions only where they are obliged to take uh, the the solution is the harmony between science and politics, which the pandemics has shown the only possibility to tackle this issue. Hey, yeah, what's the one thing that you're taking away from this dramatic roller coaster in the last two years? Well, obviously there's a lot of things, but I do want to say something that I think is uh, is a bit out of left field. Um, you know, I think it's evident the importance of um, of industry in healthcare. Um, we're witnessing how important um, um, you know, coming up with uh, vaccines and, and, and hopefully also medications um, have been to shape uh, how we're dealing with this pandemic. Um, and us, for us in healthcare, especially on the provider side, 
uh, to be able to work very closely with the industry, um, because this is what's going to make the big strides in the future as well, in terms of the advancements we're going to see in healthcare. Um, for, for me, it was um, something that we've been working on um, at ARC, um, bringing industry to work um, with providers, with payers. Um, and so I think in that regard, um, for, for us, that lesson was really important in trying to shape public-private initiatives as we move forward to uh, increase the, uh, the, the chance of us being able to uh, have a clear impact. Great, great point, Yeah, Rami, what's the key thing you're taking away from this roller coaster of the last two years? Uh, it was definitely a roller coaster. And uh, to be honest, uh, we learned a lot from Italy and uh, it avoided us having a lot of uh, sick people because we were able to uh, lock down the country and prevent one of the waves uh, from coming in, which allowed us time to uh, gather all the equipments that we need and all the test uh, uh, samples that we need. But definitely uh, the most important lesson here is that hospitals uh, need to have the resilience to handle a pandemic from now on. I don't think that uh, the way we run things uh, before was uh, is sustainable for any future pandemic. They need to have some sort of resilience, whether through field hospitals or uh, added uh, uh, beds that can be uh, added at, at uh, a few days' notice to allow for uh, pandemics to uh, occur in any country without affecting people's lives. Yeah, so really three hugely important points. And you know, one of the things that I see connecting all three is the issue of trust and confidence. Um, you know, what's very clear, um, particularly in the U.S., is that there's been a massive hit to the trust in the major government institutions around health. So the NIH, the CDC, the FDA. Walter, from your vantage point, seeing it up close, how do you see this damage in social trust and confidence, both in government agencies and in scientists? How has that been impacted? And what's the impact on that on other public health issues like other vaccinations, like climate change, community engagement around SDG involvements. Where does social trust play a role in the future of public health, given what we've learned in the last two years? I can speak for Italy and Europe. Uh, we, we experience a, an incredible amount of trust at the beginning in science and medicine. So uh, doctors and scientists were seen as uh, very important people, you know, and uh, this was very important to, to uh, convince people to stay two months at home and uh, to trust science. And then we experienced some reluctance to trust uh, when we introduced the vaccine. But in my belief, I think that this very much depends on the health literacy of the population. After all, the, the level of mistrust is largely overestimated. If you look at numbers, in, Euro in most of European countries, we have reached uh, almost 80% of coverage, at least in Western Europe. Uh, I mean, Portugal is 95%, uh, Italy is 80%, we're going to 90%. This means that the, the vast majority of population is trusting scientists, is trusting vaccine, is trusting. So there is a minority which is largely uh, fueled by the social media and also by TV. Uh, at least in Europe, TV is still very important. We run a, a survey in which 80% of the population really listen to people on TV. And this is, uh, of course, a pro. If you are able to manage a correct information, can be a cons. If you kind uh, 
a talk show uh, introducing a level of discussion which are not evidence-based. But in my opinion, this very much depends on the health literacy of the population. So, you know, it's really interesting about this aspect of, of how people trust and learn. And one of the things that we've noticed in North America is this phenomenon called doxing. I don't know if you've come across that word, but doxing is defined as how information is used against public policy and scientists to undermine their credibility. And so, you know, around the world, public health officials have resigned, many have been fired, many, uh, there's been a huge aspect of that. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, Eyal, from your perspective, as a, somebody who leads a hospital around these efforts, when you interact with government officials, how have you seen how this impact of the public sphere, how has that influenced the support that you're getting as a hospital executive? And what are some lessons about the relationship between the hospital and governments as it relates to this message of the politics, capital P, versus the ability to get the resources you need, the funding you need, and the types of supply chain resources that will allow you to deliver care? Well, I, you know, I think, um, you know, going through what we've gone through over the past almost two years, um, you know, this has been really an interesting experience on many ways. First of all, I have to say, personally, I wasn't very surprised in terms of uh, uh, the, uh, you know, uh, acceptance of the public. Uh, we all knew this was this would be an issue. Uh, going into vaccinations, we knew we we're going to have a percent of the population that will not be um, you know, in line with, with vaccinations. As we'll go now to young children, we'll see that even more pronounced over the next uh, few months. Um, the other thing that I was surprised about is seeing some uh, uh, confusion and, uh, and um, discussions between uh, physicians. Here in Israel, we've had a fraction of physicians that were opposing vaccinations. We had a fr and, and they weren't, um, a, a, you know, something that you could just um, um, do away with. They were a, a big group of some leading physicians who came against vaccines, who came against public policy um, in Israel. Um, and that, that was shocking, I think, to me and many of my colleagues to see that from our own colleagues and people that we were working shoulder to shoulder with for many, many years. And then you have this pandemic, uh, these times of crisis in front of you, and suddenly everybody takes sides. And you can see who's on what side? And that was something that we weren't expecting. And then capital P, as you're saying, politics is the next thing. Um, we're all uh, afraid, I would say, from you know, on the medical community, that what's going to drive decisions at the end of the day are, are political considerations. So of course, um, you know, some countries have really uh, made a decision to just follow what the experts are saying, um, you know, end to end, without any hesitations. Um, for a time, that was done in Israel as well. But from time to time, you could see how politics plays into the decisions. And of course, we could have seen this, I think, in every country. And of course, in the US, it was very evident, especially around the change in administrations, um, where you know how much politics had an effect. So the effect of policy on public health, again, is something we've never witnessed before. Um, so with the exceeding and growing power of healthcare um, and public policy, uh, as we've seen around COVID, and we've also starting to see how politics can play a critical role. And I think from my uh, perspective, these are the two things that were especially uh, worrisome. One is the fractioning within the medical community. Um, and the second was how politics plays into this. And, you know, in terms of lessons learned, you know, I'm not sure what we could have done differently going into this next time, because 
Um, you know, I can't really start saying that we could impact politics. Politics are there to stay. Um, you know, we, we probably uh, don't have too much impact on that. Uh, so definitely, uh, I think much will be written over the next few years of the importance of politics and how politics play into public health uh, regulations, especially during times of crisis. You know, what's interesting, Al, is, you know, uh, Trump would regularly attack physicians, including Fauci and others. Um, and then the prime minister of Israel last week attacked the head health officials in Israel, as you know, saying, well, they have ideas, but I make the decisions, right? Um, it seems that thanks to Trump, um, now it's acceptable to undermine public health officials on scientific issues. And so this is a worrisome thing because I think it will have downstream effects because we, we've uh, we've opened up a gate that's never been opened before. It used to be, you know, physicians or scientists have advice on topic, and the politicians, they might not accept what they said, but would never undermine them on substance. Now they seem to feel comfortable on substance. This is where Donald Trump suggests that maybe we can use all kinds of chemicals to rid the virus, et cetera, et cetera. And the, uh, the sales of the hydroxychloroquine went up 600% after Donald Trump said on TV, this is the best thing ever. So some very interesting aspects which relate to, you know, how do we educate the public and help them realize that these politicians perhaps are stepping outside their lane. And this is not to say that we're arguing for uh, undermining democracy. We're arguing that we should keep the science away from the politics. Is that possible, right? So, so you know, Rami, from your vantage point at a national level, you know, you've led this, this national Hakim, which is really a model around the world because it's the only country I know that everybody in the country must use the same EMR, which is really remarkable. No other country has that. And there's challenges there and there's some interesting opportunities. And so from your vantage point, as you were rolling out Hakim over the last two years, and there was a lot of politics there and a lot of COVID, how has this been impacted by COVID? And, and would you do it differently now, knowing full well how COVID has changed and impacted your recipients? hospital managers, clinicians, professional associations, and the like? Well, this definitely affected us uh, a lot, especially with, uh, uh, you know, the first of all, the lockdown, and uh, also, as uh, was mentioned earlier, uh, the confidence in public health also went down. So, for example, in Jordan, we always had a very high immunization rate among children for other vaccines, not, not covid uh, even that went down. The confidence in regular vaccines actually went down. And you can see that in the data analysis that we do on our uh, EMRs. Um, uh, it went down by more than 8%, which is pretty high. Uh, and that's mainly related to people suddenly doubting uh, any vaccine, which has never happened before. No one ever looked at the constituents of the measles or tetanus vaccine before and you know but now people are afraid of any vaccine uh, regarding uh, how things changed in the last couple of years uh, well we definitely had to uh, work with the ideas that people are not able to get uh, to the hospitals so we had to think quick and uh, establish ways for them to get the treatment uh, at, their at their homes, uh, uh, even though uh, the doctors are in the hospitals. So we had to set up uh, telehealth clinics 
we had to set up ways to book appointments, and we also had to set up ways to deliver drugs to people's homes. Uh, so three separate initiatives that had to be done just for COVID, just to handle what's been happening over the last year. Yeah, so um, Eyal, you know, you guys have done a lot of work on on, uh, on telehealth and remote patient monitoring. I'm curious if you want to share an example of how COVID changed the plan that you had that was going to be 18 to 24 months and how you had to move quickly from a strategic to a tactical change due to COVID, what are lessons that other countries that, that were a little bit a step behind Israel, what could, what could they learn from the change in your strategic uh, planning and implementation? Uh, you know, you're right. And, and the two things I wanna mention here, one is which was completely something we haven't expected. Um, we started using telehealth inside the hospital. You know, we think about telehealth as something you use remotely, right, to get to people that are away from the hospital or away from, from medical uh, um, practice. But we started using telehealth inside uh, because of COVID, and it opened up a couple of opportunities. One, we had a much better control of what goes on in the hospital. We're able to monitor patients much better. Patients were able to communicate much better because we provided them with communication tools, and we were able to, uh, to assess deteriorating patients. So a lot of things happened because of that uh, through the technology we've introduced internally. Uh, the other thing was that we had our own doctors starting using technology inside the hospital, and suddenly they're much more uh, open to using it for outside the hospital as well. Um, you know, traditionally telehealth, not all the doctors are bought into this. You know, you have a fraction, uh, typically the younger ones, that are very much interested in using technology and um, you know, others are, are less um, interested, uh, less trust the technology. We're using technology today to examine patients from afar. There are technology that allows us to listen to the heart and lungs of patients who are miles or thousands of miles away from us and do complete physical examinations on patients without being in the same room with them. Um, we have now more than I would say hundreds of doctors inside our facility that are used to working with this type of technology because of COVID. So now when we introduce it to non-COVID reasons, and of course we all know that healthcare requires such solutions, suddenly we're able to expand the reach of, um, of telemedicine and expand the reach of the numbers of, of clinicians that are open to use it. And of course, that's what we've seen. So one of the things as you're saying, moving strategically, um, and was that coming out of the second wave of COVID, we made a strategic decision, and that was to open a virtual hospital. Uh, Sheba typically has four hospitals. We have an acute care, a rehabilitation, a children's hospital, and a women's hospital. We now have a fifth hospital, a virtual one, that provides services only through telemedicine. Um, and it's not in competition with the other four hospitals. So... Uh, so this was a strategic move from our perspective that we were thinking about doing, but I think definitely COVID has really accelerated that decision-making and the amount of investment that has gone into this decision. You know, what's interesting, um, Eyal, is I don't know if you've seen this recent data, but in the U.S. now, the satisfaction of telehealth is much higher amongst patients and amongst providers. Um, and so... Um, you know, initially the numbers were very high on both numbers, but now amongst patients, it's still about um, 60, 70, 80%. Amongst physicians, it's down to about 30%. So 
So it's a very interesting shifting going on right now, whereas many physicians are saying, while telehealth can work, I would rather see the physician or the team face-to-face, whereas the patients are getting used to seeing them remotely. So very interesting how to tease out, um, you know, we, we got the initial impact of telehealth. Now that we're moving into a subacute chronic, how do we get those other clinicians who are saying it's not good enough to do full time? So why I like the idea, now that I can do bricks and mortar face-to-face, why should I do telehealth? What do you say to them, Rami? I say telehealth is here to stay. I don't see it going away, to be honest. Uh, The patients will demand it and uh, the doctors will need to provide it. Uh, Even when uh, they're asked to come back to the hospitals, many of them saying, no, I'm I'm very comfortable. Thank you very much. Now, there are certain clinics that uh, appeal to telehealth much more than others, uh, like, you know, dermatology, nephrology. Uh, but uh, maybe some uh, one, some of the ones that are harder to uh, uh, you know uh, examine during telehealth may still get their wishes uh, of the uh, patients coming in. But I would say telehealth is here to stay. I don't think see it uh, going away. Well, you know, when I read the signal, and I'm curious, Walter, your thoughts. I read the signal that while telehealth is here it's not good enough for all those other providers. And so for me, as somebody who works with technologists, I think, how do we take that pushback to improve it even more? How do we better align it with the lived experience of a frontline surgeon or anesthesiologist or nurse? How do we make sure the technology is not just in the eyes of the designers, but is truly co-produced with clinicians and maps and tracks their day-to-day experiences. So what are those lessons, Walter, that we can apply around rethinking design of service lines in healthcare? Healthcare was already a complex system. It's going to become even more complex, you know, because essentially we have to find the most appropriate mix between the different kinds of services. We shouldn't forget the safety and the quality of care. I mean, our colleagues uh, say that uh, not in all sectors and not in all fields, uh, uh, telehealth and telemedicine provide the best possible care. I uh, couldn't agree more with colleagues about the fact that telehealth and telemedicine is here to stay. In Italy, it skyrocketed, and now it's a minimum level of care. This means that it has to be provided in all the country, independently of the regions. And you know, in Italy, we have a regional-based uh, national health service. So it's here to stay, but this makes more challenging for managers, for professionals, uh, to manage this kind of hybrid model, you know, and uh, I think uh, that is uh, needs a kind of training and education, a change of culture, because technology is here. Of course, that there can be problem, can be improved, but culture is not yet. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, in in all this, the minds and the hearts, particularly of professionals, and we have to work hard to make it happening. You know, uh, Walter. Um... In each of the countries that we're taking here, Jordan, Israel, um, uh, Italy, as well as in the US, we've seen massive variation by geography. You and I were involved in a study looking at the Emilia Romana region, which was remarkably more effective in their population health than the next door province of Lombardy. So the question really is, you know, all politics are local. Could all public health and telehealth be local? So how do we really understand this massive variation? We used to think everybody gets the same standard. As we're discovering in COVID, there's massive variations in the impact of the same interventions or technology. So what are the lessons for public policy, for funding and strategy 
given this massive variation within countries and within counties, lessons that we can apply in order to get more engagement of the population and get more effective implementation. But first it has to be measured, you know, because in most of the cases, this is not measured at all. And uh, engineers uh, teach us that unless you measure something, you, you can't manage it, you know? So you have to measure variation. We are starting to do that. And variation means geographical variation, providers variation, but also clinicians variation. You have to measure and you have to manage that. So in other words, you have to introduce the concept of clinical governance that was uh, discovered and discussed in England many, many years ago, but that is very much uh, you know, fragmented at the moment. So you have to find a way in which this can be brought to a kind of standardization, which is very far away from happening. But uh, I, I really believe that it's important the international collaboration, the starting up of community of practice and exchange and transfer of best practices. You know, Eyal, um, in Israel, I've been reading that there's massive success in COVID in different sub-communities, Arabs, Druze, religious people, etc. Um, from your vantage point, from a hospital perspective, when you see different sub-communities, the diversity, both of the patients, the, the providers, and how this has impacted the success and impact, how do you approach that diversity challenge? And again, what are lessons that COVID has brought forward, for example, getting to hard-reach communities, engaging them more fully? How do we need to adapt our approaches to deal with the wide, multicultural, multi-diverse approaches that COVID has uh, presented to us? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we're seeing in a nutshell with the COVID experience, we're seeing something that, um, you know, we, we, it was in front of our eyes always, but we never really put that much effort into it. Um, you know, we have to tailor made the solution to the population. Uh, that's critical, especially when we have very diverse populations. Um, you know, when you try to uh, see why you have low vaccination rates with ultra-Orthodox Jews, the reason would be very different than with uh, the Arab population or with the secular population. And we know this to be true even before COVID, uh, when you try to think about healthy living, uh, when you try to think about um, obesity and how to tackle that, or chronic disease management. We knew that ahead of time that you have to approach it differently according to culture. Cultural competence and ability to uh, react according to, to different cultures was always something that we knew was important. But here we are con you know, confronted with this time of crisis where we have to act very fast, where we can't wait and build plans and write papers about something, where we need to make decisions tomorrow because people are dying. And um, it hits us right in the face how important this cultural diversity is. So the lesson learned is something we've learned before, but we are not doing such a perfect job in terms of uh, implementing. And that is to really be tailor-made tailor solutions to the specific cultures um, and, um, and at the end of the day, that works, as we've seen. You know, Rami, one of the biggest things, and, and you and I met recently, we talked about the impact of mental health on, on, on you, your family, your community, your providers. Um, around the world, mental health problems, challenges for both citizens, communities has been extreme, massive rates of depression, um, overeating, um, spouse abuse, child abuse. But also amongst healthcare providers, there's been a massive increase of at least 300% increase in depression, in alcoholism, in self-harm. Again, given the existential impact on, on, uh, uh, on healthcare providers and the access challenges, 
what are the lessons that we need to learn as policymakers going forward, given the vulnerability that healthcare providers have presented, and how do we best protect them going forward for this or other pandemics or disasters? Um, that's a very good question, uh, Paul, because uh, if you are uh, feeling anxious or depressed, I'm not sure how uh, good you are in taking care of others, uh, especially others who are desperate for your attention. Uh, anxiety and depression has gone up a lot in 2020. And I know the uh, readings in, uh, recently in the U.S. show that it has uh, gone down in, in the last uh, few months. But uh, I think... Uh, it's very important to know that uh, the mental health uh, of people in general, and doctors are no exceptions, uh, were strongly affected by the social isolation more than anything else. I don't think the, the actual pandemic uh, was a main uh, driver as much as the change in your social circles and the way of life that affected us most. Um, the pandemic is still here, but the anxiety and depression rates are going down because we're going back to certain ways of life that we were not able to do that uh, to do before. Now, uh, obviously, telehealth really works very well for uh, mental uh, health therapy, and I think uh, that has been a huge stigma in the whole Arab world. And uh, I think telehealth is going to be a savior for uh, the Arab world because uh, the stigma of going to uh, a psychiatrist is still strong in, in this uh, part of the world. And I think uh, with telehealth, it will offer a lot of people uh, ways to access uh, doctors and therapists who can help them out uh, and help with their anxiety and depression. You know, Walter, one of the biggest things that have shaken me and continue to shake me is how we abandon our seniors. I don't just mean the fact that COVID targeted seniors. I mean that we as a society neglected to attend to the fact that the seniors who before were struggling with isolation and separation during the early six to 12 months of COVID, we more or less politically abandoned them. And this has become apparent in investigations in multiple countries in Europe in the US and Israel and other places. Um, What's your thoughts on that? And, and how do we go forward as we're all kind of reaching our senior years? What are lessons about what we've watched? And uh, given this growing subpopulation, seniors in, in, our, in the world, um, what are key uh, introspections that you've learned from that? And how do we make sure that we attend to that going forward? Actually, what happened in the first uh, stage of the pandemic was terrible uh, because I couldn't forget when we decided not to allow any parents or siblings to visit people in nursing homes. It was a terrible for them. But now vaccination is the key. A National Institute of Health study last week showed that the reduction of mortality in nursing homes has been incredible. So just 0.3% of the deaths now are happening there. So it means that vaccine and vaccination is the key. And then of course, that doesn't mean that this is enough. So you have to uh, pair this kind of technology approach with the social and human interaction. So, but I strongly believe that uh, taking care of, uh, of, uh, of uh, old people means that you have to be uh, holistic in the approach, even in during a pandemic. But now with vaccination, we have the possibility to do that. <laughs> 
So, Walter, as you know, the problem or the challenge with many seniors is that if they're not technophobic, the technology is not easy for them to use because of its small letters and, and the knobology, the human factors. And so, you know, while technology is widely out there, have we done enough to make it easy for seniors to access it? Yes, indeed. I think uh, that this is a totally new uh, way of uh, developing technology uh, making this uh, user-friendly for elderly people. I know that there are already companies and industry that are working in that direction. So I believe that in the future, there will be a dedicated technology to these people. So what's interesting, um, Ayala, I imagine you follow this closely. So the FDA is exploring requiring telehealth companies to go through a human factors a template similar to medical devices. Um, and they're doing that because there's so much hype and there's so much overheating of the marketplace that they feel that very few telehealth solutions actually get through. So they're thinking as a regulator, should they elevate the threshold in order to require the companies to use more usability assessment, more context inquiry, more pre-market assessment? Is that good for telehealth or not so good? I think it's natural and we're going to see that uh, expand even over the next couple of years as telehealth takes more center stage, um, you know, like any other thing. Um, um, you know, apps, for example, we're seeing some countries that are regulating apps. And it does make a lot of sense because you can download thousands of apps now um, out of the app store um, and there's no regulation. You're not really, you don't really know what you're using. If you have diabetes and you want something to track your glucose, there are hundreds of apps um, that are not regulated, <coughs> excuse me. So. So I think this is natural, uh, as we'll see this space become uh, uh, more crowded with more players, we'll need some sort of regulation. Of course, we'll need to make sure we're not overshooting to the other side, where regulation will actually be hindering innovation, will be hindering um, um, you know, fast uh, development. Uh, and so that's, it's always a double-edged sword when we talk about regulation, as you know. Uh, so I think this is something to keep in mind, but I think the FDA is definitely going in the right direction in terms of thinking about this and trying to put forward some regulations. You know, what's interesting about that is, is, um, is the role of social science and behavioral science in helping to better understand the role of technologies. And so, you know, FDA in the past used a very engineering approach. Now they're talking about using a very social technical approach. So that really lends to another question, which is what is the role of social and behavioral sciences in better understanding how people behave during pandemics, how to engage them more fully, and how to bring them more out of the darkness, some would say, into the main limelight. So what is the role of social science, Rami, in driving better uptake, sustainment, and improvement of telehealth and digital health technologies? Um, to be honest, uh, we faced uh, very challenging issues when we uh, did our telehealth because we wanted to have a highly regulated uh, app, for example, to uh, work with for uh, uh, telehealth. And we noticed uh, uh, that uh, you really need to have many uh, apps available to do what you want. And that made us very clearly realize that different behaviors of people uh, need to be accommodated. Uh, so uh, this is where my other job with the Royal Health Awareness Society uh, comes in, where we needed to really work hard on the behavioral change that needed to be uh, done to allow uh, 
people to get more uh, involved in uh, messaging through the uh, telehealth uh, services and how to use it properly, how to uh, be able to benefit the most from it. You know, for example, as you mentioned, the seniors uh, uh, are technologically challenged. But sometimes when you bring the son or daughter to sit in with the senior and it brings them in and it makes them more involved in their care. It uh, allows them to uh, better understand what's going on. And uh, maybe they're there to help with the technology setup, but they're there for the whole session and it really makes a big difference. Many of the behavioral changes uh, can be worked on to improve uh, the, the experience of the patient and obviously, uh, the feedback from the doctor would be much more when uh, someone's there with them, for example. Yeah, um, I'm sure you've been tracking multiple senior journals like the BMJ, Lancet, and the journal JAMA have retracted science. We've had lots and lots of people called speed science or a paperdemic. So much so that scientists are saying, maybe we can't trust when we read a paper in a senior journal, maybe we have to rethink the way we read research papers because of the crazy increase in the number of papers being published, which one is overwhelming, causes me serious anxiety <laughs> about this. And, and what are some lessons for the medical publishing industry, the editors, the authors, the reviewers, and how do we best think about that? What are the key lessons that COVID has taught us about the good, bad, and ugly about getting good science out there versus overwhelming scientists, as well as publishing some garbage science, which has led to some um, conflicting actions and adversarial behaviors. Well, I think, um, sorry. Go ahead, Dave. Uh, I think that, um, um, you know, when, when we talk about that, first of all, I think one of the things that is clearly out there is real world evidence. You know, the importance of real world evidence was uh, it's completely changed over this uh, past uh, uh, couple of months. Uh, um, you know, we, FDA is making decisions based on real-world evidence and not randomized controlled trials. Um, I think it's justified. I think this is, you know, we have to do what, with what we have. Uh, real-world evidence has a lot of advantages over even randomized controlled trials. So in that regard, I think what we're seeing is real-world evidence coming into major journals where that was not the case before. New England Journal of Medicine publishing, um, you know, from Israel just over the past couple of months, I think uh, something like seven or eight original papers about real-world evidence on, uh, on, on vaccination effects because Israel was very quick to vaccinate also on the booster. So um, I think in that regard, I think it's good news. I think what we were going to see is, of course, the top journals. And of course, there always has been a distinction between top journals and lower tier journals. And that has to remain. And so if you're, if you're publishing in a top journal, if you're reading a, a paper on a top journal like the New England or Lancet or BMJ, you need to know that this has been going through very highly scrutinizing eyes from a methodological point of view, from a scientific point of view. That has to remain. And we need to trust those journals because you could publish anything anywhere today. Uh, you'll, you'll find some paper to publish, whatever you're writing. But obviously still publishing at the New England Journal of Medicine or BMJ or some of those top journals is still a daunting uh, task for any researcher. And it has to go through these scrutinizing eyes. So as long as that goes on, I feel quite comfortable that, um, you know, we should still continue to uh, um, learn as much as we can from the evidence that we're, we're reading on those top journals. Rami, what are your thoughts on that? I just wanted to add that uh, the, the, the preprint 
part of uh, uh, the journals is really uh, has really expanded a lot in because of covid and we had to read so many journals that are uh, uh, i mean so many articles that are in preprint i'm not sure if any of them are going to be printed i mean maybe some of them will be thrown out we know that about a third of them are uh, rejected or withdrawn well exactly i mean we we had to depend on that science for a while because the uh, papers that we used to depend on like the bmj lancet and the new england journal uh, were not fast enough for the pandemic even though they're weekly and they, they used to be really good enough but now they're not uh, as good uh, because the pandemic was changing daily if not hourly uh, i just wanted to add that that was an amazing thing that we had uh, during the pandemic that i think may change the way we look at uh, how we publish papers walter um shifting gears do you think governments and international bodies like the who failed in their messaging and communication um are there lessons there for how we can help them improve public messaging um before during and after pandemics Honestly speaking, I, I don't think so. I mean, I was part of the executive board of the World Health Organization when uh, Tedros came back from Beijing uh, and described the state of the art. So I think that the WHO really described the situation as it was, uh, uh, putting uh, evidence and essentially disseminating only the, the kind of information that were based on this evidence. Of course, uh, the speed of communication could be improved. I mean, public institutions are... Uh, too slow, sometimes even uh, to change ideas or to, you know, uh, improve the communication. So I think that the role of public institution is first to be quicker and second to master better social media. You know, uh, they are unprepared to this kind of uh, tool and they suffer the kind of uh, effectiveness that sometimes uh, propagator of fake news uh, are. And uh, this has to be taken in a different way. So if I can say that uh, WHO has to improve, it has to improve in the speed and in the effectiveness of managing social media. So is social media good or bad for pandemic management? In my opinion, they were bad, but mostly uh, overestimated in their negative effect. Because uh, uh, at the end of the day, again, uh, the survey which was carried out last week in Italy no more than 3% of the population really uh, took uh, information by social media. The vast majority was by still by traditional media, such as TV, uh, then, of course, the press, and then radio. So the social media were the last to be informative for the population. They are a different source of uh, information you know, and communication, but that doesn't mean that public institutions have to ignore them. They have to start to manage them rather than ignore them. Yeah. Um, you know, Eyal, one of the biggest things, you and I have talked about this in the past, is, is applying better risk management tools, including um, the trade-off in risks and safety and quality, and of course, during COVID. And I'm curious, when you think about the lessons now you had as a CMO, as you think about better risk management around safety, what do you think we've learned from how to engage our providers more fully using various tools that we had to deploy during COVID that could be applied for improving patient safety uh, in hospitals or clinics or, or, or across healthcare systems? Well, I think, you know, I've, I've mentioned before, and I'll probably, um, you know, get back to this example that, um, 
you know, the role of technology um, that uh, we had to roll out very quickly during COVID, uh, looking for, you know, any um, um, solutions that might help us uh, cope with this new situation. Uh, we've learned so much from that. Um, I mean, just the, um, uh, for many examples, we've, we've published a couple of papers on, on how we've used cameras, for example, in intensive care units, because we didn't want the staff to be um, at the bedside at all time because of the fear of them contracting the virus, especially during the first months when we didn't have the vaccine. So we used more cameras. Camera can help us a lot in terms of patient safety because you're able to follow the patient and see if he's trying to get out of bed maybe and he's not able to and is about to fall and so on and so on and things that might happen. Um, and, and we've used cameras a lot uh, since that COVID, also in non-COVID areas. Uh, so I think much of that, um, you know, a couple of things that happened without, you know, nothing was planned ahead of time. Nobody was really thinking that cameras would grow in scope or in use in healthcare because of a pandemic. That wasn't something we were expecting. But these are the type of things that, are actually uh, have a potential to improve uh, quality and patient safety, and and it's not just the cameras. It's uh, you know just our ability to perform better um, uh, better control over um, infection control measures, uh, being able to uh, uh, you know do more observations on how the nurses would you know would uh, uh, mask and protect themselves before going into the ward. We're using some of those methodologies also to see now that they're introducing an and a central line the proper way. So I think many of the things that we've um, we've actually implemented during COVID, you know, as, as to your question, will stay with us to improve our ability to handle quality and patient safety and specifically around, you know, infection in so the hospital. So that's a question for both of you. And I'll ask Rami first, and then I'll ask you to think about this. One of the biggest problems, as you know, in patient safety is that staff rarely report adverse events and that many staff are afraid to speak up. Many studies have shown, for example, that when nurses lack psychological safety, more patients die in hospitals, irrespective of what physicians do. So here's the question to you, Rami, and then Eyal. Do you think that after COVID, with all these more intrusive technologies, cameras, telehealth, et cetera, do you think staff are more willing to tell the truth? They feel more psychological safety or because of all this wonderful technology at the bedside, no pun intended, now staff are afraid that everything they say and do will be recorded in posterity. So there's the question. Has the COVID pandemic increased psychological safety as it relates to getting the staff members to be more truthful and honest in capturing and reporting process or outcome failures? Rami. Well, I think from the way you put the question, the answer is quite clear that uh, obviously nobody likes to be recorded in uh, camera during their whole uh, day. And uh, uh, although telehealth uh, is important, I don't think uh, it should stay as the only way to do uh, healthcare. Uh, obviously, it will attract a different type of healthcare workers uh, to this. And I totally agree with you that uh, people who are not comfortable with cameras will not enjoy this at all. And uh, people who uh, are comfortable with it, maybe we need to start teaching it in our nursing and medical schools on how to behave in telemedicine and uh, how to behave uh, during uh, interviews on, on, on cameras. Uh, we haven't been taught, we had to learn on the go. And uh, I think uh, with time, uh, people will be more comfortable because they are using it, uh, the younger generation at least, uh, are using it more and more often. 
So I think the younger generation will not have much of an issue, but uh, definitely the older generation will feel uh, a bit uh, out of place and they will feel judged every time they look into a camera. What do you think, Ayal? Do they love you more or less ever since you introduced cameras into the ICUs? Well, I'll say COVID is no magic bullet, right? I mean, it's not that we've solved all of our cultural problems with COVID. Uh, it's definitely, um, there's so much still to do. Uh, you know, we always, when we teach students about uh, quality and patient safety, we always say, you know, that culture at the end of the day trumps everything. It's, uh, it's about building the right culture, and there's almost no shortcuts to doing that, not even a pandemic. But I will say that we're moving the needle. And I think COVID has moved the needle a little bit more. Uh, you know, people understood the importance of cameras because they saw the benefits suddenly. There are some benefits to cameras and, and some clinicians realize that. They've never saw that before. So if there are benefits, maybe, you know, balancing benefits versus harm of now I'm being watched and, and maybe recorded and things like that, maybe it's not that bad to, to have cameras. So we are moving the needle. Have we solved all the problems and everybody's in line with it? Completely no. Um, but we're seeing more and more that are jumping on board. You didn't answer my question. Do they love you more or less? <laughs> no, I think they. I think they really appreciated the fact that we um, did no. everything possible to protect them. Of course. The now, Walter, you're very involved in training of both physicians and public health leaders. Do you think the present curricula for physicians and nurses or public health prepared them properly to be ready for this pandemic? And if not, what needs to change in future training approaches, uh, uh, um, oversight, mentorship, and coaching in order to prepare the, the public health teams to better manage future and present pandemic, either natural or unnatural disasters? I think that the current healthcare workforce is uh, appropriately prepared from the technological point of view, from the professional point of view. Of course, they have to be improving in the technological, in the cultural, in the communication, in the leadership and management skills. Uh, these are, you know, the, the tools that are needed to face uh, the present because the pandemic is not over. It will last for months if we don't act differently, at least if we don't create a kind of global governance and we don't produce more vaccines for the poor countries. And in the, for, to, to face the future pandemics, because essentially what is important is to be able not only to be professionally able, but also to be able to communicate and to manage, to interact, and of course, to manage technology as well. So it's, it's a challenge, but I think that, uh, as uh, the colleagues said, we are on the right track. So I want to ask some uh, final round of questions here uh, for all of you. Do you think that the proper lessons of innovation are being taken away by the ecosystem of digital companies, equity companies, and others? Are they understanding the complexity of how to better work with physicians and nurses and hospital executives in order to deliver, reduce the cycle of development so that we can accelerate the input and integration of new devices into the marketplace? Eyal, why don't you go first, and then Rami, then Walter. I think what we've seen, um, you know, very, very, um, you know, uh, explicitly is the role of, for example, the pharma companies played. Um, you know, I started, um, you know, by, by saying this, I think that this was, you know, really tremendous. We all understood the importance of pharma companies, but pharma companies became the savior of the world. You know, the Pfizer's and the Moderna's and the AstraZeneca's, they are the savers. We're looking to them, you know, as, 
as the ones that are going to take us and deliver us out of this uh, worst crisis that humanity knew. Also um, at, a, at a very steep upfront fee. For sure, for sure. And of course, that as we know, something something has to drive this and we know the cost of developing drugs. But I, and at the end of the day, working together with the industry has allowed us to create this in, in this space, uh, working together, allowing uh, clinical trials to move quicker, FDA being more, you know, the whole notion of, uh, of being able to provide uh, regulations in, in a fast pace, which we've never seen before. You know, we all know how long it takes to take vaccinations through, uh, through an FDA approval. Um, so I think all of us have made the adjustments to the fact that this is a times of crisis. Again, one of the worst crises the world has ever seen. And still, what are we learning when we come out of this in terms of regulations, in terms of working with the industry, in terms of, of, uh, of future development? Uh, I think this has to reflect on all industry, not just pharma, but also medical devices, which haven't really played a major role here. Uh, but something has to change in all of this, in us working together with the industry. And again, these are the types of lessons I'm taking with me. Walter, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think they are start understanding, but they are not there yet, you know, so they still have to understand that this, as we said before, is increasing complexity, and we have to find a different way to manage this kind of complexity. So, in other words, technology is here to stay, telemedicine is here to stay, but we have to work together. We have to develop new partnership with the different stakeholders, certainly politicians with scientists, but also professionals and the scientists with industry. In Europe, we are trying to do that, but we still see that there are some companies that do not understand this shift. Uh, they still rely on a kind of marketing approach, you know, that uh, it's very much old fashioned in the face of the present and future challenges. So we have to work together. It's, uh, we have just started to do that. All right, so I want to now ask each of you a final message as we wrap up here. I'll start with Rami and then Eyal and then Walter. Rami, what's your final take, uh, final message to people listening to this live panel about what are the key lessons that they should take away as they move forward and uh, to strengthen their health systems and become more ethical and equitable as we learn from the COVID pandemic? I think uh, resilience of the healthcare system needs to be totally different uh, from now on, and they need to sit together and figure out what's their best way in their country to make each uh, healthcare system work better for future pandemics. Okay, great comment. Eyal? Yeah, I'll follow up on that and I'll say that, you know, we definitely need to be better prepared for next time. Um, resilience is, is part of that. Uh, but having a plan also, having a plan on how do we increase capacity in, in times like these, because we'll never have a healthcare system that can handle um, such large uh, um, loads of patients in, in every day. We'll need to be able to increase capacity very quickly in, in days or weeks to be able to answer for future pandemics. So being better prepared in you know, disaster preparedness and other um, modes of uh, operations that we know, you know, not for pandemics, we haven't done that a lot, but earthquakes, and we have handled that in the past. I think we need to make sure we know how to handle pandemics better in the future in, in increasing capacity. Yeah. Walter, your final thoughts? That we have spoken appropriately about our comfort zone of healthcare, but uh, science uh, shouldn't be focusing only on, uh, of course, important, resilient health systems 
had to be focused on the, on the challenge of the future. The world is hot and crowded. Uh, it means that climate change is a major uh, you know, challenge for us, that uh, the overcrowding, the incredible mobility, international migration, refugees, wars, these are all problems that, uh, at least from my point of view as public health people, we have to deal with. And so this means that, that the future shouldn't be considered as a destination, because if we consider it as a passive destination, it's not good. It's a kind of dystopic future in which inequalities will rise, everybody is not going to be safe, and there's a problem for everybody. So the future is something like a bridge that we have to first imagine, second plan, and then build. And my opinion is that we have to do that together. Um, I cannot think of a more golden age for public health, Walter, than we're going into in the next decade. So this applies both to the quality and safety question, but to the public health as well. Rami, Ayala, Walter, you guys have been great. Thank you so much for your candid and thoughtful uh, comments. Um, you, you, you have incredible wisdom and experience, and I hope maybe we'll follow this up with a proper peer review paper to capture some of this, because so much of this is important and valuable, and yet... Um, it's an evolving story. So again, thank you so much for your participation. Um, I look forward uh, to talking more with you in the rest of the conference. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank, thank you. you, Paul. Thank you very thank much. You.